Welcome to the Ashram Podcast, made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. You can visit ashram.org, that's A-S-H-R-M.org, slash membership to learn more and to become an Ashram member. I'm Bill Klaproth. On this podcast, we're talking about FMEA. What is it? When is it utilized? And what is the process? Today, we're talking with Jerry Schimmel, patient safety and risk professional consultant, and Ann Huben Carney, a risk and patient safety consultant. Jerry and Ann, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's nice to be here. I agree completely. This is exciting. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Looking forward to talking about this. Jerry, let's start with you. So, what is an FMEA? And why is it essential in the Risk Patient Safety Professionals Toolkit? Well, an FMEA is a failure mode and effects analysis. And for the sake of some context for our discussion here, I'd like to put a definition to it. So it is a systematic approach to identifying risks associated with a new process, product, practice, policy, et cetera, or a change to an existing process, and you want to do this before implementation. It's essential in the risk professionals toolkit because it is proactive. Unfortunately, as risk managers, we spend our time doing root cause analyses, RCAs, out of necessity. That's when an event has already occurred and unfortunately, very possibly harmed a patient. So the more FMEAs we can do before there's any intervention needed with the patient or it has reached the patient and we have solved the system problem, put a better process in place, the better off everyone is because we have created a safer environment both for patients, their families, and ourselves as risk professionals. So hope that answers the question. Yeah. And any thoughts on that? You want to add to that? No, I think the point that Jerry's raising is excellent, that you know we need to put more of our energy, time, and, and resources into those FMEAs to prevent harm. And that's exactly what Jerry said. And, and it's to help patient staff, the organization, and definitely you know, the, the employees as risk professionals. And Jerry, since we're talking about FMEAs, it sounds like maybe... Some healthcare institutions don't do this, and it sounds like it's a practice that should be incorporated more often. Is that right? I think that they are done. Certainly, if you are an accredited organization under joint commission, you are required to do at least one a year. However, what we're trying to do is to shift the balance of time. So instead of risk professionals needing to follow up on incident reports and um, doing root cause analyses. We want folks to be able to be spending more of that time in the proactive world instead of the reactive world. The proactive world is both failure mode effects analyses, FMEA, and apparent cause analysis, ACA. So you can think of an ACA as sort of a baby little piece. It's looking at one step that may be in a larger FMEA. 
I think what you're also saying is that when you're doing those FMEAs, you're really identifying those unintended consequences with a new or a change in a process. You don't know that sometimes until you're into it. You've already implemented the process or the policy. We had one with a blood draw. Lab changed the policy on when they were going to do the blood, not when, but how, that they had to have a, a nurse sign off. But blood draws were done at change of shift. Nurses were busy giving report, medicating patients, taking care of things. And it was done without the involvement of the nursing department. So labs weren't getting done on time because they're waiting for the nurse, which backed up everything else for that day for that particular patient, either discharge, you know, pre-op or whatever. So that was an unintended consequence for a policy that they thought they were doing the right thing to reduce labeling errors on the blood specimens. Which is exactly to the point, Anne, that indeed... Here they changed a policy and a process, but they didn't necessarily create a better mousetrap. The new process in and of itself had defect. And so really you need to put this all also in the context of that PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act process so that when you create a new process or you're evaluating a process, you go back and say, okay, we put an action plan into place. Is that action plan working? And Anne will talk more about that when she talks about the steps. One of the things you made me think of is that I sometimes, and it's for some, it's the thinking outside of the box of what you would use an FMEA for. But to me, sometimes these are best suited for the things that you say, this is an accident waiting to happen. The things that the frontline staff, and some of those things are very limited, so they could meet the limited criteria of an ACA. But some of them, when you actually start to look at the processes, as Anne's example just was, they involve other departments, they are more complicated. You really need to map out the whole thing to determine who the players are that are involved that need to come to the table for the discussion. Well, we love examples, so thank you both for sharing that. We appreciate it. So, Anne, when could an FMEA be utilized? Well, I think, you know, as Jerry said, you're creating a new service, you know, a new clinical department. Say, you know, with the pandemic, when you're implementing telehealth, you know, and getting the physician office practices, you're changing a system, you're changing your electronic um, health record. You want to improve a process or a system. An example, you know, again, to help is a patient flow program, but not doing the whole patient. And we'll talk about that when we get to scope, but what piece of the patient flow program and, and dividing it into bite-sized pieces. You're looking at high-risk meds and not all the high-risk meds administration, but a particular high-risk med. And then again, as Jerry said, the whole process. You're starting a, a Coumadin clinic. You're moving uh, patients. You're now deciding to do C-sections in the OR versus the OB department. You're looking at meds for your, say, long-term care or, or inpatients through a J-tube or a G-tube, but just that particular process. And even an emergency response, you know, Jerry and I were talking about an example, that we have emergency response plans. You're moving patients, say, for example, from a freestanding Jerry psych unit, either to another facility, or even in case of an emergency, flooding, whatever it might be. You have the policy on paper but are all the participants, to go back to Jerry's point, involved in who is there on the night shift moving those patients? What is the emergency response? 
just literally going through the steps that Jerry talked about. So there really is is just about anything that you can think of, quite honestly, even the bite size. And I like that point that you're talking about, Jerry, that piece could be an FMEA because it's something that's bothering the nurses. It's uh, an accident waiting to happen or the staff is telling you, you know, this doesn't flow right or, or the workarounds. Why are you doing workarounds? There's something in this system is not working effectively. There's no one that knows the work better than the people doing the work. I watched an example this morning. The ER has a policy where the pharmacist comes and does the med rec. The patient thought, thought the idea was brilliant. The patient had a written list of their medications. A couple hours later, up on the unit, Nurse comes in with the meds, very astute patient. Patient said, is this this and this dose? It's a different color. Is it this and this dose? The doses were all wrong. So where did that process, is it helpful to have the extra person of the pharmacist coming in in the ER, or should the nurses taking care of the patients be doing the med rec? I don't have an answer. But what I'm saying is it, it was just an illuminating example this morning of what seems like a great idea and a new process being put into place fell apart. That's perfect. Here's your FMAA right there. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about this, the implementation of this. And can you provide us with an overview of the FMA process? You were talking about scope earlier. Can you, can you, can you tell us how does that work? Well, I'm going to give an overview, as you noted, but I'm going to, you know, and Jerry and I talked, recommending a systematic approach. So there is a degree of subjectivity because you're going to be involving people, you're going to do a flow chart, and, and everybody's got a different perspective. But we're going to caution you not to underestimate the potential failure modes or the effects. I mean, try to get, as Jerry said, it might be a simple thing, but it might be more complex. And then you want to start with a clear beginning. What is the first step? and the clear end. I gave the example of medication administration with high-risk meds. You're not gonna take on all high, the whole medication administration process. It is multiple, complex, et cetera. But as I gave the example, just breaking it down is meds administered via a J-tube or a G-tube, or as I said, a high-risk medication. For the patient's falls, FMEA, you may wanna just do the patient assessment and do an FMAA on that and the tools and the process and the education and differentiation on your assessment scales, and then another on the patient fault prevention strategy. So you have, I think the saying is, is not boiling the ocean. You want to have a clear starting point. We're going to talk about medications through a J-tube or a G-tube. And then you're going to say, and the end is when the medication is administrated to the right patient at the right time and the right dose. So using your example, Jerry, medication reconciliation in the ER. You know, I think there's so many, but very finite is my point. And then once you've done that, and I think you've heard us allude to it, but how important it is to have a cross-functional team. You want them to have the knowledge and the skills and what their roles are in relation to that scope of the FMEA. You know, you're going to look at transporting meds from the nursing unit up to the, you know, from the pharmacy to the nursing unit. You want to make sure that the couriers who are transporting the meds are part of the team. And I think we want to consider if you're related to this system, you may also want to include the patient or their family. Say you're changing an aspect of patient registration. 
why not have the patience? And like your example, Jerry, with the, the loved one going, an astute individual going through that medication reconciliation process. Think about when the patient or, say, a member of the patient family council should be involved. You've heard us talk about frontline staff, critical, absolutely critical. But we want to make sure that you don't forget IT, because so many of the issues in Jerry, your medication reconciliation might be an issue with the system, the EHR system, not talking from the ER to the nursing unit. Where's IT with that integration? Correct. And very often, to, to your point with IT, IT does what's needed or federally required or et cetera within their IT system, but they don't necessarily know how it is impacting the staff in the overall scheme of the process of something getting done. We also have a couple of cautions. Minimize the number of supervisory or management level staff. They're absolutely vital. They're gonna help with the implementation, but you don't want the frontline staff feeling intimidated. You wanna know about the potential workarounds that they're gonna anticipate or that they know of. And also representatives from other shifts, you know, being nurses, we know that what happens on the first shift may not be the same on the second shift, including the resources available. So make sure that you're looking at the big picture. The next one is flow charting. And I think we've talked about that, that you want to brainstorm. You want to look at the perspectives of every department involved. And it's not a blame game. It's really focusing on trying to fix the problem. So what's that first step in the scope? And then literally flow chart. We like sticky notes, and move them around as you need to. Great answer, Anne. I, uh, you know it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been sending it for you, Jerry. <laughs> but like specimen labeling in a physician office, what are the steps? Where are the supplies located? What time do the specimens get picked up? Where do they get picked up, et cetera? And the key that we found out that if this team cannot agree on the steps of the process, it is an unreliable process and a much bigger problem. So then it should be a PI project rather than an FMEA because they cannot agree on the steps. Clearly, they're not clearly understood. Jerry, you mind to add anything to that about the um, flow charting? No, I, I, I would have added the, the last point that you made. It's very important that everyone agree. It's often uncomfortable when you see that as, as opposed to a process lining up, people have different approaches to the same process. Right, the, the path divergence. Then the fun part comes in, if you've done the steps, you're gonna identify the potential failure modes for each step. And again, the sticky notes, you're moving them around. What other things that could go wrong? And it could be related to knowledge. It could be related to equipment. It could be related to time. It could be related to the environment. Just move those around. And then you're going to identify the frequency, severity, and ease of detection for each one of those failures. You're asking the question that already for each of the failure modes, what could fail at this step, whether it's serious or insignificant? Then you're going to say, how frequently could that happen? Because you're looking at the cause. Why and how could this failure happen? How frequently that could happen? What is the severity? What's the likelihood of that failure mode? And, and again, as Jerry talked about, you know, the near misses, what's the risk of that, you know, hitting the patient? And then if it does, what's the severity of that? But one thing as well, when you're looking at all the um, potential failure modes, is to make sure that you look at the ERM environment, the whole domains, 
clinical and patient safety, strategy, you know, that new clinical service, financial, what are the implications of cost saving or cost, you know, reduction, human capital, human capital, human capital. Do you have the resources to do it? Legal and regulatory, Jerry mentioned already about the Drug Commission. Technology, which I think and we think is becoming more and more of an issue. And then obviously the hazard. We mentioned the uh, emergency response. So you're rating the severity. One, perhaps no harm. Ten is the most severe patient death, permanent patient harm as a result of the failure. The likelihood of occurring it, of occurrence. One is higher than likely. It's never happened before. It's a fluke. Or 10 being, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It happens regularly. And that's where the staff and the workarounds are really, really important. And then the last is likelihood of detection. High detectability, you know, you know it's going to happen. Low detectability is really scary. It's unexpected. It doesn't happen that often. It's, again, how you as a group determine the ratings, not just an individual, but the group. Jerry, you want to add something to that? When we're talking about scale and harm scale, I think it's very important to bring up the fact that it's essential that everyone across the organization is using the same rating scale and approaching that rating scale in the same way. We're not here to say you should use this scale or that scale or the other. There are many of them out there, but it is essential that everyone on the team working on the project knows just the same as the scope. Here's the scope very clearly of what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to address. And here's the methodology that we are going to use then the scale to rate our problem or issue or whatever you'd like to call it. So that everyone is working in the same direction moving forward. If I think something is a 10, And Ann turns around and says, well, Jerry, really in the organization, I think this is a two, then we're not going to have consensus or leadership buy-in on how the work is going to proceed. If we can't, as the team looking at the issue, if we can't come to consensus. And the reason why we're talking about this is because based on that rating scale, and again, whatever you use, you're going to determine the risk priority index. As I mentioned earlier, you're not going to boil the ocean. What are the most important things to start out with? So you're going to multiply the severity times the likelihood of occurrence times the likelihood of detection. And I want to just give you a real-life example. We've all been driving along, well, most of us, and it's a flat tire while we're driving. It's high severity. You can't drive with a flat tire, so we'll give that a 10. Low level of occurrence, I'm hoping to, you know, it should be fairly low. And then easily detected, maybe not so easily detected because it's losing air and you're driving along. So I'll give that a three. So the 10, the severity, times the likelihood of occurrence, two, times the likelihood of detection, three, equals 60. And that's how you determine your risk priority index. And you do that for each of the potential failures, and then you determine what are your priorities. And based on that is your action plan. You're not going to do everything. You're not going to do the low-lying fruit. You're going to do what is most important, what's most critical to this particular process. Now, make sure your frontline staff are involved in developing the action plan for the FMEA, but also the monitoring metrics. They are indeed part of the solution. So once you implement those actions and you want to know what, when, and who is responsible, and Jerry and I will reiterate, please don't make it the professional responsible It should be the department 
that is most intricately involved with it, with whatever the issue might be, um, the lab, the IT, if it's an EHR system, whatever it might be, but the low, that level, not the risk professional. And then you're going to monitor the effectiveness of the actions. FMEAs are ineffective and inefficient if the actions are not implemented properly. But how are you going to know that? You're going to know because you're going to monitor the actions. Gary, you have a thought on that? Yeah, I think it's very important and that when the action plan and the measures are determined, that the measures actually have timeframes associated with them. We're going to measure once a week for two months, then we're going to go to every third month. And because that feedback, although it is not the risk professional who is doing the monitoring, that feedback and those measures are something that should go to whether it then becomes a committee or the risk professional who's following it up. And that way they can determine when it's ready to potentially roll out across an entire system. And that's really good. I like that, Jerry, because if it's not effective at any point along the way, you have the opportunity to intercede and analyze why. Is there an unforeseen failure, something totally, totally unexpected? Or maybe one of those dreaded workarounds, again, having the team involved with the action plan hopefully will reduce those workarounds. Or maybe there's another change taking place in the organization that's affecting your particular FMEA. So that's really good to have that going on concurrently rather than waiting for the end. So that's my part, a very brief overview of the steps involved. I love it. Well, I tried to keep notes for our listeners, Anne. So to recap, you mentioned make sure you have a clear first step and a clear end. Focus on a cross-functional team. Include the patient and family, if that makes sense. You said don't forget about IT. You said make sure the front line is up to speed, but don't overwhelm. You talked about staying focused on the big picture. You talked about flow charting this in your sticky notes example, which was great, and focus on fixing the problem. Then you talked about the failure modes, identify failure for each step, identify the frequency, the severity. You talked about ease of detection. You gave us that great flat tire example in the index. You said make sure the frontline staff is involved and also pay attention to monitoring. And then lastly, you have to monitor for the effectiveness of the actions as well. So thank you for that great process. We appreciate that. So Jerry, this is all great stuff. Let me ask you this. Are there any additional resources or upcoming educational sessions available where people can continue to educate themselves on this? Absolutely. First and foremost, I'd like to send everyone to the Ashram Failure Mode and Effects playbook, which came out last September. So not everybody may be familiar with it. It's a fairly new publication. And that will go through all of what we've been talking about in, in great detail. Additionally, at the Ashram annual pre-conference, which is September 29th and 30th, we will be doing another session of the Patient Safety Certificate Program. And we talk about failure modes, we talk about root cause analyses, and we talk about parent cause analyses in the two-day course. And then on Sunday, October 1st, we are actually doing a pre-conference workshop specifically on FMEA. So multiple opportunities for people to 
join in and get more information and have some time for actual hands-on practice with the tools. Love it. Well, Jerry and Anne, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. One last question for each of you. As we wrap up talking about FMEA, Anne, can you share any final thoughts you have with us? One thing is, just to remind everyone, it is worth the time. We know it is a time-consuming process to do it right. Brainstorming the steps takes time, and having the input from everyone takes time, but it is worth it. You're going to reduce the need for an RCA, root cause analysis, but most importantly, you're going to identify and reduce risks for your patients, for your staff, and for the organization. Well said. And Jerry, how about you? Final thoughts. Remember, it is an essential tool in the Risk Professionals Toolkit, and we'd like you to think about FMEA tagged differently. Maybe it'll help everybody consider. So focus on proactive risk management, make it efficient and effective, educate, implement, and sustain change, and act and engage collaboratively. Absolutely. Well, Anne and Jerry, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We're glad you joined us. And once again, that's Jerry Schimmel and Anne Huben Carney. And you can learn more if you go to the Ashram website, ashram.org, and look up publications and they'll look for the Failure Mode and Effects Analysis FMEA playbook. The Ashram podcast was made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. You can visit ashram.org slash membership to learn more and to become an Ashram member. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and check out the full podcast library for topics of interest to you. I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.